Father, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This, this is the right response, Father, when we consider that you brought your Son into this world who would be named Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins. Lord, they bowed down in worship. They did what all of us sinners must do when we encounter the great and holy King. Bow down before Him, recognizing that only by His mercy might we be saved. And Father, they gave Him gifts. The thing that we must do in response to what this Savior, Lord God, King has done for us, give back out of all that we have. O oh Lord, make Your people at Riverside true worshipers like this today who rejoice and bow down and give of themselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who don't know, I was raised in a Christian home where Jesus was talked about quite a lot. My parents were first-generation Christians, which meant that they both came from homes where, though culturally Christian, None of my grandparents actually knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, at least not until many years later when my parents had been fully grown. But thankfully, the Lord graciously saved my mom in the early 1970s and my dad several years later after much intercessory prayer on the part of my mom. By the time I was born, my parents were both believers in Christ and worship as well as church membership and faithful participation, were an important part of their lives. So from my earliest days, I heard a lot about the good name of Jesus. And for this, I, I praise God. Their new faith also meant that holidays like Easter and Christmas took on a new and profound significance for them. These were no longer occasions to merely get together with extended family to eat rich foods and exchange gifts because now these holidays were wrapped up in a life and eternity-changing message. And it was at Christmas time especially that my parents' eyes would get bright with excitement and the volume of their Jesus talk was turned up a couple of notches. And we would spend an awful lot of time reading and considering passages like Matthew chapter 2. So perhaps you're like me and you have read or you have heard of this story many times over. Or perhaps this is the first time you have considered it. I find that with Christmas narratives like this that people often miss the forest for the trees. They become enamored with details surrounding the birth of Christ, like what kind of star was this, and how many wise men were there, and when did these guys actually arrive, since Jesus and Mary are now living in a house, it says, and no longer surrounded by the animals like the Christ child was when he was first born in a manger. While I am certainly not suggesting that asking and answering such questions has no value, it does seem like these considerations can often overshadow the ultimate message behind these accounts. And so my encouragement today is that we not miss the message this morning. But there has been quite the important question, I think, regarding the first 12 verses of this chapter that commonly comes to my mind when I read them, and it did over the last couple of weeks as I've been pondering this text. And I think answering this question actually gets to the heart of Matthew's message here in this gospel. 
The question is, why did God bring these wise men or magi all the way from the east, from what seems like a pretty far away place, solely for the purpose of honoring Jesus? God can do anything, so why did he do this? And why did he do it the way that he did it? Why did he bring these men from afar by guiding them with a star in the sky that first brought them to Jerusalem, then evidently disappeared for a time, and then reappeared in the sky over Bethlehem, a little hamlet just a few miles away from Jerusalem, the capital? Why did God do this? What was his reasoning? And and why did Matthew deem it so important as to consider it in his account, in his account with these 12 verses here that Tim just read for us? This is the question I want us to answer this morning. So I would ask you to look with me at the text. First of all, I want you to see this story in its setting. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Notice, first of all, the people of this story. We begin with Jesus in verse 1, who was born in the town of Bethlehem in the region of Judea. We saw two weeks ago as we considered his family tree in chapter 1 that he is from the house and lineage of King David the most famous and most prominent king of Israel. Jesus is from the line of the king and the great promises that God made to the king, to King David, regarding the eternal throne are fulfilled in Jesus now, the ultimate heir to this throne. We talked about that two weeks ago. And last week, we considered the angel's words to Joseph at the end of chapter 1. We saw that Joseph was Jesus' legal but not biological father. Mary, Joseph's betrothed wife, who was still a virgin, had conceived a child from the Holy Spirit, verse 20 of chapter 1 told us, which fulfilled biblical prophecy, namely the biblical prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. And the angel, informing Joseph of God's work through Mary, commanded him to take her as his wife, and Joseph did so faithfully. So the birth of Jesus, as we have seen, was all of, all of God. It was all of the Lord. God brought his son into the world at his precise time and through this specific virgin. And the word was fulfilled, my friends. God is with us. And now in chapter 2, we see him born. Matthew doesn't give as many of the details surrounding Christ's birth like we find in Luke's gospel but we do see some very important items surrounding his bodily entry into the world. For instance, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a little village just a few miles away from Jerusalem, was the hometown of King David. And as we'll see, it was the place where the Christ would have to come. Next, we see Herod, known in history as Herod the Great. Herod was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He was not a Jew. He was a client king of the Romans who allowed him to rule over the realm of Judea as long as he honored their laws and paid homage to their leaders and provided them with plenty of Jewish tax dollars. 
He had no birthright whatsoever to be the king of Israel. He was not Jewish and was only on the throne due to political skill as well as violence and intrigue. He was known as Herod the Great because he actually did have some tremendous accomplishments. He brought relief to the land when it underwent a great famine. And he completed many incredible building projects, especially a revamp of the Jewish temple that was admired by everyone in his day. But my friends, Herod was a scoundrel. D.A. Carson writes of him, He loved power, inflicted, heavily, inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on the people, and resented the fact that many of the Jews considered him a usurper. In his last years, suffering an illness that compounded his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy killed close associates, his wife Mariamne, and at least two of his sons. End quote. As we're going to see next week, he would let nothing, not even the lives of little children, stand in the way of his grip on power. We also see the wise men here. These guys remain somewhat of a mystery to us. The Greek word behind wise men is the word magoi, what we refer to as magi. The prophet Daniel referred to magi as magicians, mystical enchanters who were once part of the court of the Babylonian kings. Though the word likely had more nuance to it by the time of Christ's birth, the concept of wise men is still probably not the best way to think of these guys. The term likely referred to individuals who were interested in dreams and astrology and magic and prophetic writings and anything mysterious to them. We don't actually know their number. Some have surmised that they were three because they presented three gifts, but the text does not tell us it was three. And they were from the east, it says. So perhaps they were from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, or from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. Or some other place, we simply do not know for sure. What we do know is that these men came from other nations, and I think that's key. It seems they were Gentiles from Gentile lands. Thus, it is quite interesting that here at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, a foreign people came from a faraway place to worship the newborn king of Israel. Then again, this is exactly what God said would happen. In Isaiah the prophet, chapter 60, it said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Notice the words of these magi in verse 2. They said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Somehow, perhaps by reading some Jewish prophetic writings, they knew that a Christ, Messiah, a king, had been prophesied. We do not know all that God did to make them aware of this, but whatever information they had, it was enough to make them follow a star westward toward Jerusalem. And what of that star, anyway? Verse 2 says, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. If they were astrologers, like many suggest, they perhaps spent their nights studying the stars in an attempt to find meaning and insight from them. And in God's grace, in light of that, which 
I think was not wise at all. In light of that, God in his grace used a star and in some mysterious way revealed himself to them through the usage of that star. In truth, we have no idea what this star would have looked like or what nature of light this would have been. The fact that it shone in the sky and then disappeared only to reemerge again in verse 9, as we're going to see, makes me think that this was something beyond physical explanation. That this star was actually miraculous in nature and probably doesn't have a physical ex- explanation that we can find. Scholars have tried, but there's been no consensus. But this light really could have been anything that God in His power deemed appropriate to illuminate the way for these wise travelers. My friends, I am willing to believe that this God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. I am willing to believe that He parted the Red Sea to deliver His people. I am willing to believe that He made the walls of Jericho fall down without even a push. I am willing to believe that He brought fire down from heaven before the prophets of Baal. I am willing to believe that he brought his son into the world through a virgin, and I am willing to believe that he raised him up back from the dead after he had paid for my sins. So I can easily believe that my God miraculously created a star for the express purpose of bringing the nations to worship his son. I think I stand with the overwhelming majority throughout world history who believe that the impossible can happen that the unexplainable has an explanation, and that God can and does perform miracles. God used a star to lead them, and that should should make every single follower of Christ say, wow, he did that. And worship is the reason that these men came. They wanted to honor Christ. They wanted to revere Israel's Messiah. They wanted to welcome this newborn king of Israel. Secondly, this morning, see the fulfillment of the prophecy. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod and the people of Israel were troubled. Herod was troubled by this news from the Magi because it presented a threat to his rule. His right to the throne had always been questioned, and he was extremely paranoid of anyone who might usurp his reign. And to now hear from these mysterious world travelers that a king would be born troubled him greatly. He didn't want another king. He was king. And his reaction is also not surprising considering the culture of his day. Astrological speculation was widespread in the ancient world and tremendous stock was placed on the star-driven predictions regarding rulers. Passing comets were said to signify the change of a king. In In fact, people speculated years later under Emperor Nero of Rome that he might soon be deposed when they saw a comet shooting across one night in the sky. Leaders were frequently concerned over news regarding the stars, and Herod, perhaps worried that the cosmic sign of this particular light up in the sky indicated his own pending demise. So Herod was troubled, it says. 
And the people of Jerusalem were also troubled, it tells us. This is perhaps speculation, but I wonder if their fear had to do with how Herod himself might react to the news. They're troubled because they learned that this king is troubled. What would, what would he do now? Would he do something tyrannical? Would this mean greater trouble for the people of Israel might have been going through their minds? And again, as we're going to see next week, they had very good reason to be troubled over how this man might react. So Herod inquired where the Christ was to be born. He assembled all the religious leaders, the chief priests who were made up of the current and the former chief priests of Israel, as well as the scribes who were men learned in the law of Moses and in all of the Old Testament writings that you find in the first two-thirds of your Bible. And the answer they gave him was precise. They said, Bethlehem of Judea, that's where the king will come. As I've already mentioned, Bethlehem was the hometown of King David. The king had to be born in David's town because the prophecy declared that it would be so. Here in verse 6, Matthew loosely quotes from the prophet Micah in chapter 5 of his book, verse 2, when that passage says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This prophecy, given many hundreds of years before Christ came to earth, promised a leader who would shepherd God's people in great strength while bringing peace to all the land. As the prophecy goes on to say in Micah chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So notice carefully the prophecy in verse 6. When it says, you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The great ruler would come from Bethlehem. This is where the Magi would need to go. And this is where Herod placed his terrible gaze. Third, note with me the duplicity of Herod. Verse 7 then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He summoned these magi to him in secret, and he asked them what time the star had first appeared. Likely, he wanted to know exactly when the Magi first saw the star in order to learn the approximate age of the child. Perhaps they told him that they'd first seen the star around two years ago since it was the two-year-olds and younger in the town of Bethlehem who would soon experience Herod's full savagery. And he evidently trusted the Magi because he sent them alone without a military escort to the village of Bethlehem to search for this child king. And here we discover his lie in verse 8. He said to them that I too may come and worship him. Herod, of course, had no intent on worshiping the king of kings. He had no desire to revere the Christ, no yearning to honor the Messiah, and he had no plans to bow down before him. Herod merely did what many with power 
have done through the ages. He lied to try and keep it. My friends, the powers of this world are always troubled by the prospect of God's reign. God on the throne means accountability. God in control means justice. And knowing themselves all too well, the last thing that such leaders want is justice. They don't want God's authority over them. And they fear that God's judgment will be appropriately ministered upon them. The very last thing that they want is for righteousness to reign over them. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Mankind, exemplified by bad leaders down through the ages, has been shown to be the kind of beings who want to rip off all the binds. We see God is only constraining us. We see His law as only a burden upon us. And these kings of the earth, they wanted to rip it all off and be free to reign in their own supposed wisdom. They do not want His rule. And today, in our own political climate, in our own political climate, when we see dishonest, self-absorbed, power-hungry leaders, we should not be surprised. Appalled, yes. Saddened, of course. Prayerful, always. But never surprised. And we must all take heart, for in a little town as Bethlehem, this little, tiny, little hamlet, the King of Righteousness indeed has come. And we await for His full reign. Fourth, See the wise men worship. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The star returned, my friends, which led them to great joy. It somehow, in some way, went before them and rested over the place where this child was. And I can't even begin to imagine its beauty. It was a most splendid road marker pointing these men from afar to the king of God's created world. And they responded accordingly when they found him beneath it. Notice verse 10 very carefully, because this is at the heart of worship. It says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Couldn't Matthew have just said they were really happy? Couldn't he have just said that? That's how we would say it, wouldn't we? But Matthew is placing great emphasis here with his Greek verbiage that he has employed in this text. When words were doubled up like this, like the word joy, which is used twice here, along with the pairing of words like great and exceeding, Greek writers were not overstating something 
They were emphasizing something. Matthew was emphasizing something that was deep. He was trying to give the full feeling of their gladness at that moment. He is here describing the kind of joy that is only understood by those who know God Himself, who believe His promises and understand His good ways. They rejoiced with a joy that exceeds other joys. They were glad with a gladness that was greater than that that was found elsewhere. These magi experienced the utmost delight when they found the star again in the sky because when they saw it, they knew God was again directing their way right to the king. And this inspired such a gladness in their heart that no mere human language could rightly relate it. Their hearts were filled with joy over God and they were going to see him. My friends, gladness is at the very heart of Christian worship. The psalmist said in Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. We don't do this in a humdrum way. We sing, we rejoice, we live our lives with great gladness over God and not because of circumstance. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 10 a passage that speaks of the day when all of God's people will enjoy God's full reign over the earth, says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away, he writes. And this gladness was in the heart of these magi as they made their way to Bethlehem. They found the child, and they gave him great honor. Their first response was to bow down before him. This is what you did to honor someone great. This is what you did to honor a king. They fell down, they prostrated themselves, and they worshipped him. They recognized who he was, they appreciated him for his great significance, and they dropped to the ground. This was not a silly response. I don't think there was any awkwardness in their hearts, nor do I think it was at all out of place for Mary to witness. Just satisfaction over the gift that God had given them to see the face of the king. No awkwardness, just joy that they get to see him. Their next response was to give him out of their abundance. Giving of gifts was very common in that day when he visited someone from a long journey. And they had three magnificent and costly, costly gifts to offer the child. First of all, they gave gold, the most precious and valuable of all metals. And then frankincense, a pleasant-smelling gum resin used for incense offerings and worship ceremonies. And then myrrh, a perfume that was often used for burial of a human body. Some church fathers developed the idea long ago that gold was given because Jesus was king. Frankincense was given because Jesus would be the high priest of God, and myrrh was given because Jesus would die. And that sure sounds good, but there's really no evidence that that was the intended meaning. Better is the idea that these are the first fruits of what the nations, the first fruits of what the Gentiles would bring to Jesus in their worship of him as their king, 
because that's what the Bible said would happen. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you, it says. The psalmist said in Psalm 72, verse 10, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. So here I think we see a microcosm of the nations coming to the king with their gifts. When these men from afar came before the Christ, they responded rightly. My friends, they worshipped him. Gentiles, people from the nations, non-Jews, worshipped the king of Israel. Finally, they left a different way than they came. God had warned them in a dream. We're going to see that he does more warning next week. He warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, and they returned home another way. Now let's go back to the question I asked at the beginning of this message. Why did God do this? Why did God bring these men from afar to rejoice and bow down and give Jesus gifts? He put a magnificent star in the sky to bring them there. So why did he do it? What was his reasoning? And I think I see the answer. God brought about the extraordinary praise for his son. Like a spotlight, God did something astonishing here, something unexpected here, and he put a radiant light upon this child that all people might see the worth of Jesus. God brought men from a long distance Men from afar, stargazers from the Gentiles to worship this child king. Because God wanted all the world to see, not just Jews, that his son had come into this world. My friends, in Matthew chapter 2, God ordained praise for his son from the nations, from Gentiles like me. Consider how important worship is to the Father that He ordained it like this for the Son. Consider how much God values joyful, humble, right worship when He puts a star in the sky and brings a bunch of stargazers from a distant land all the way into this little hamlet of Bethlehem just to prostrate themselves and to worship Him. He's taking all of his light and pointing it right down on the little house and saying, My son, see, world, here he is for you. This is at the heart of Matthew's gospel, my friends. If you're missing this now, please get it quick because this is at the heart of what we're going to see. It's at the heart of Matthew's gospel. The idea that God would make worshipers for himself from all nations, from all peoples, from all kinds and stripes. The trajectory of this book has the nations in its mind. Consider with me chapter 12. Go there with me. If you have a copy of God's word, Matthew 12. And notice with me verses 41 and 42. See what already was reality with the nations. Matthew 12, verse 41. Jesus is speaking 
And he says to the Jewish leadership, the men of Nineveh, Nineveh was a Gentile town. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, Jesus is talking, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So get this, the people of Nineveh, a Gentile city, they got it, they repented, the people of Israel didn't, and something even greater than what happened then has now arrived. Catch the next verse. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Even greater than when the queen came to Solomon with all of his wisdom and believed upon his God. Even greater than that is the reality that something better than this has come. To the nations, to the Gentiles, the realization is made that something greater has indeed come through Jesus. Now look forward with me to chapter 21. Matthew 21. Look at verse 43. Matthew 21, verse 43. Jesus speaking says, Therefore I tell you, speaking to the Jewish leaders, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. The fruitless people of Israel who had all of the promises, the kingdom will be taken away from them and it will be given to a people who actually produce the fruit of God. A people made up of Jews and Gentiles of every stripe and every ethnicity, every color, every nation. The kingdom of Jesus will be taken from Israel and given to a fruitful people made up of all peoples. And look at chapter 24. See where we are going. Chapter 24. Look at verse 14. Chapter 24. Jesus speaking again to a whole host of Israelites, prominently his disciples, says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. To all the ethnos, to all the peoples, to all those who are not Israelites, the gospel will be proclaimed. The good news of Christ's kingdom would go out to the world. And then, and then see the end of the book. Chapter 28, verse 19. A passage that has so much application for the church of God, you should have it memorized at heart. Chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples before he returned back into the clouds to his father, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Christ's disciples would go to all peoples and make disciples of all lands. Matthew is beginning this right here in chapter 2. My friends, God brought Magi from afar to show right here at the beginning of this book that those who are far off, sinners of all ethnicities, can now draw near and worship to the Son, the King of God's world. 
He puts the worship of his son at the top of his priority list, and now he beckons all people to come. And then we get to the book of Acts, and they begin in Jerusalem and Judea, and they begin to spread a little bit to Samaria, and all of a sudden, people who are kind of like Jews, but not really Jews, begin to come to know Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, a guy like Cornelius, a Gentile, but he feared God, he comes to know Jesus Christ. And then we get to Acts chapter 13, and Paul is sent out by his church to go and take the gospel to the nations. The plan begins when these guys, magi from afar, come and bow down in joy and offer gifts, knowing that this is the king, not just of the people of Israel. This is the king of the people of Newport Ritchie and all peoples. So I have three applications for us from this text. Number one, God invites you who are far off to draw near to his son. Just as with the Magi, so it is with you, my friends. Come near and bow down. Hear the words of Jesus just several chapters later from chapter 2 in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whatever your background, whatever your sin, no matter how distant you have felt from God, no matter how much of a wretch you know that you are, please understand all you who are weary and heavy laden, this is the king who bids all people, no matter how far away, to come to him. He pleads with you to come to him. This is the king who would go himself to the cross and die shedding his blood, paying the price for your sins, for all people like you and me who are far off and far away from God. And then rise again from the dead in triumph as we sang. And if we will come to him in faith, repenting of our sins, we will know the joy of these men on that day. We will rejoice with joy inexpressible. That will be us. So wherever you are, whatever your sin, whatever your background, no matter how much baggage you carry, come, come to the king. Secondly, this morning, God, if you know him, God ordained your salvation for the praise of his son. He ordained your salvation for the praise of his son. God brought men from a faraway place to exult over Jesus, and he saved you that you also might praise his great name. Listen to the Apostle Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter 2 to Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For those of us who have been saved, we are to talk a big game about a big God. He is to be on our lips we pour forth our praise to him, not merely in songs on a Sunday morning, but in our words, in our teachings, in our life example, the praise that we model with our lives. We pour this out for him. Personally, our lives are now for his praise. 
We praise Him by taking our battle with sin seriously and not thinking that we can just neglect it. We praise Him by sacrificially giving of ourselves to His people. That's what we do personally. We uplift His name. And corporately, our church is for, my friends, Riverside is for the praise of His name. We must magnify His name together when we worship. It is about Him. We must develop also mature worshipers through acts of ongoing ministry to others. We must be about the task of teaching other people how to live lives of worship before God. And missionally, missionally we are to make worshipers of all. And our field, our nations, so to speak, are the people coming to 5500 Main Street right across the way, and the people living around our community in Newport Ritchie and Pasco County and your neighbors who live right next door and have work right next to your work, all of them, that's our nations. We must begin by loving them and investing in them, getting down into the nitty-gritty, the dirty, hard stuff of life with them, and then evangelize them. Not just show, but actually share the good news. And we must progress in that relationship when they come to know Jesus Christ by helping them to develop as life worshipers of Jesus Christ. My friends, as Christians, we are in the business of making worshipers. That's what it's about. That's what a disciple does. He is a worshiper. She is a worshiper. We are in the business of making disciples. We are in the business of making worshipers of God. We're in the business of making people who come before the king and bow down in joy and give of their lives to him. That's what we do. And my third application is this. God urges you to rejoice greatly over his son. When the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And this, my friends, is at the heart of it all. We must daily rejoice over the king. Circumstances are always going to push against that, but that is always the aim of looking upon Jesus afresh, of considering him anew, of recognizing all that he has accomplished, and then embracing it with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, knowing that in this life, this temporary life that is waning away with the kingdom to come, that in this life now, we even have a taste of his joy that will be expanded indefinitely on that day. So we rejoice now in expectation and in gladness over the intimacy that we have with him in his word and in prayer and with his, and with his people. So rejoice today, my friends. I ask that you would be a wise man, be a wise woman, be like a magi, and have a life that is marked by worship. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for this text of Scripture and the opportunity yet again to consider it and apply it to our lives. I thank you that you brought these men from a long distance, Lord, and what that reveals to us. And I thank you, Father, that we get a picture of the heart of worship here. And I pray that that picture would be what exemplifies our attempts to praise your name at Riverside.
Lord, build this church as you promised to do and as only you can do, Lord. And make worshipers here, those who with gladness and heart seek to lift up the name of your Son, Lord, and give to him out of all that you have given. And I pray this in Jesus' name.